This morning's reading is from Psalm 100. Psalm 27. Okay, it's not, it's not right up here. Let me find it. <laughs> Thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> uh, okay, um, this morning's reading is from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, it's like uh, you remember in school whenever a sub teacher comes in and everything's just a little bit like, everything's just a little bit. Maybe not quite as organized as he usually is. Um, I'll take the responsibility for that. Subteachers in. Hi, everyone. <laughs> My name is Thomas. Uh, I'm part of the eldership team here. Really glad that you've joined us uh, this morning. As you'll know, um, if you've been around, that we're spending summer um, in, we're spending our Sunday mornings in this beautiful collection of nitty-gritty, no-nonsense, bittersweet symphonies known as the Psalms. Our prayer for this season is that we would allow these words, these poems, to become the very language that we use in our walk with the Lord, not just another biblical book on the shelf. I don't know about you, but often my conversations with God can become monotone. They can become a little bit samey. But the Psalms show us that this doesn't have to be the case. Your conversations with Jesus don't have to be dull. They don't have to be monotone. The Psalms show us that we've been invited into a rich conversation with Jesus that is simple but varied and developing a habit of reading and praying and singing and meditating on the Psalms at this stage of life will help us, will give us language for every stage of life that is yet to come. 
Because as Tom Wright puts it, the Psalms express all the emotions that we are ever likely to feel, including some we hope we may not. And the Psalms lay them raw and open in the presence of God. In writing to a young church plant in the city of Philippi, Paul invites followers of Jesus to learn to rejoice in the Lord always at all times. Not in one place, but in all places. Not in one moment, but in all moments. On first, second, maybe 20th hearing, that can be kind of hard to wrap your head around. What does it mean to worship, to, to rejoice in the Lord always at all times? So my thesis for this talk is, this morning is pretty simple. It's that the Psalms teach us how to worship. They teach us how to pray. They teach us how to rejoice in all places, in all moments. So we're going to cover a little bit of what worship is, why it's important, and then something really uncomfortable. I'm going to give a glimpse into what this looks like for me. Um, so let's, yeah, let's get going. Maybe let's ask the Holy Spirit for help before we do. Uh, Father, we thank you for your words. Uh, we thank you for the truth it contains, for the incredible uh, beauty it shows us about who you are and what you've done. Um, Lord, as, uh, as we come to your words, uh, teach us, mold us. Holy Spirit, be with us. Amen. So whenever the disciples approach Jesus asking to be taught how to pray, Jesus teaches them a prayer. He teaches them a prayer that begins with a line of adoration. It's a prayer of worship. It begins, as you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't use that word hallowed often, do we? I mean, like literally, if we're honest, use it in this prayer, and that's about the only time we use it. To hallow means to honor as holy. It's a verb. It's an active word. But the question I want to ask is, why does Jesus teach us to pray in this way? Why should our prayers begin like this? Because if I begin a conversation with someone speaking like this, telling them how great they are, how amazing they are, how wonderful they are, it's either because I want something from them, or I can tell they're maybe having a bad day when they need a little pick-me-up, little self-esteem boost. So is this what God is like? Is this what prayer is about? Is this why we're to pray? Well, no, obviously not. I think we can agree that Jesus is the most secure person who has ever walked the planet. Doesn't need a little self-esteem boost. Worshiping God is incredibly important. He, he deserves that glory. He deserves that praise. But I think it's interesting to also look at the effect that us hallowing God has on ourselves as well. So often other things, other people in our lives, they are hallowed more than Jesus is. And so this first line of the Lord's Prayer is an act of redirecting our worship. It redirects our adoration. It redirects our hallowing towards the one who is worthy of it all. I don't know if you've ever thought about that idea of redirecting or even directing our worship in the first place. Worship isn't a Christian thing. It's not. Worship is a human thing. In his famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, the late American novelist, writer, David Foster Wallace, who wasn't um, a, a Christian writer, not really sure if he had much of a faith, but he spoke to the truth that to be human is to worship, and he said this. 
In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. So worship is essentially directing our hearts, our loves, our longings towards the thing to the person that matters most to us. And God has formed us ultimately in this way because he wants that place within us to be filled with him and him alone. But our (laughs) default isn't to do that. We don't do that. We put other things in that place. We make counterfeit gods. That's the default. If it's not Jesus that's the center of our lives, it's going to be something else. We will worship something else. Our hearts will be restless until we come to see that glorifying God and enjoying him forever, shout out to the Presbyterians who remember that one, is being what human is, being what human is all about. A helpful quote from uh, Ronald Ruhlheiser says, Today most of us do not see our restless longing as pushing towards the infinite towards God. We've trivialized and tamed our longing. Instead of longing for the transcendent, we anesthetize and distract ourselves by focusing our desires on the, quote, good life, on sex, on money, on success, and and on whatever else we think everybody has. There's nothing inherently bad about these things, but if we define our deepest longings as directed towards these things in themselves, we end up mostly disappointed and empty. Ultimately, a restless aching is a yearning for God. Philip Yancey pulls the perspective up away from the individual to a societal, cultural level, and he says, when a society denies the supernatural, Uh, When a a society that usually denies the supernatural ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. See, only Jesus is meant to occupy this hallowed place in our hearts. Only he is worthy of our worship. But what we do all the time is try to hoist or elevate natural things into a supernatural space. We try to put things in places that they're not meant to be. The list of natural things, popularity, progress in your career, your body image, the dream house with the dream interior, your holiday, your sex life, your influence, your sports team, your perfect partner relationship, your perfect kids, whatever. The list is endless. We hoist them up and we try to keep them there. But we can't bear the weight of them. And so often with the things that we hallow that aren't Jesus, the things that we center our lives on, as we put them into place that they're not meant to be, they either break our hearts or they collapse on top of us. And that's why I want to redirect our attention towards Psalm 27, where we find David praying to God. If you're unfamiliar with David, he's a man who has seen much success. He's a man who's familiar with power, with popularity, with riches. He's a man who has had a lot of sex. And yet in this prayer, he confesses that none of it is enough. None of those things have satisfied him. But there's one thing that has. And so in verse 4 of Psalm 27, he cries out, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
For David, the one thing, the ultimate thing, the thing above anything else is the worship of God and learning to rest in his presence. If the heart is an idol factory, as Calvin said, David has tried all of the products on the production line and none of them have satisfied the deepest longing of his heart. He's saying here that there's only one thing that's worth hallowing and that's worshiping God himself. All that other stuff, all the good things, rest and joy and peace, all those things that you're longing for will only ever be satisfied as you learn to dwell in the presence of Jesus. So let me ask you this. What is that one thing for you? What is the possession? What's the dream? What's the idea? Who's the person that you're hallowing above everyone else? What is it? Who is it? And then tell me, how's that going for you? Trust me, friends, your hearts will be restless until you find rest in the worship of a loving God. There is a better yoke to be carried. This is why paying attention to our worship is so important. Our worship is a confrontation. Uh, The poet Mary Oliver said this, Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. As we walk through modern life in Belfast in 2022, our attention, our devotion is contested all the time. This contest, this this fighting for our attention, it's happening all of the time. It's probably happening now. It'll definitely be happening when you're heading home. It'll definitely happen whenever you're going to work tomorrow. It'll happen when you're on your holiday. It will 100% happen the next time you're on your phone. Every time you watch TV or whatever, it's happening all the time. And the bad news is you've been set up to fail Obscene amounts of billions of dollars have been spent on this idea of called the attention economy. Smart people have realized that there's profit to be made in hijacking your attention. It started with the newspaper, it, then it continued through the radio, through the TV, through the computer screen, and now it's this, the phone, fracking our modern attention span. We are targeted, we are tracked, the algorithms are after us and you can't escape them. On average, we're exposed to more than 3,000 ads a day. We've been set up to fail. Attention leads to devotion. Distraction leads us to disillusionment. So in big ways and small ways, rival gods, idols are all trying to pull at our adoration, our hallowing. They're pulling it away from Jesus, pulling us away from that one thing that Jesus has found, that David has found. And so our worship of Jesus over all those other things is a conscious and confronting act of resistance, of turning our inward gaze towards him and through our praising of him, making his beauty and his greatness more important than anything else in our life. That is the act of resistance. With all the idols and rival gods that are chasing after us, as we learn to worship Jesus, and it is something we learn, we are training ourselves in this new creation that we have become according to God's word. 
In Christ Jesus, we are a new creation, but we have to learn what that means to live that out. As we learn to worship Jesus, we confess to him, we declare that there's one thing out of our life, and it's Jesus. But maybe let's take a step back and think about that word worship. So whenever I say worship, what comes to mind? Usually for me, when I think of worship, I think about what we just did, what we did at the start and end of our gatherings, singing songs together. And of course, that's worship. God's people joining together in one room, singing together, uniting our wonderful and tone-deaf voices together. You know who you, no, you don't know who you are? <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. It's incredibly important. We are to sing spiritual songs to one another. We are singing together. That's one of the most important practices of the church. It's beautiful. But the worship set Music comes to an end, so what then? And if David Foster Wallace is right in saying that the day-to-day trenches of adult life, that is the space where our devotion, our hallowing is most contested, well then how do we worship? In the, gaps between, in the gap between Sunday and Sunday, in the thick of ordinary, everyday, hectic life, how do we worship? The answer has to be prayer, friends prayer, the attention that we give to the one who attends to us, the decision to approach God as the personal center, as our Lord and Savior. Through our prayers, our conversation with God, we can approach him not as a man-made idol, but as the living, resurrected king of our lives. In the gap between Sunday and Sunday, our days, our comings, our goings, they have to be punctuated with prayerful praise. This is the rejoice always thing. The question is how we do it. And I'm going to suggest two ways, or frame this in two ways, in set ways and in spontaneous ways, in the fixed and in the free. So let's talk about the set ways first. As a devout Jew, Jesus would have had a set rhythm to his daily prayer life. He would have gone to the temple on the Sabbath, and daily he would have prayed a prayer known as the Shema. And he prayed it three times a day, and we find it in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. That's it, three times a day. There would have been a set rhythm to Jesus' thanksgiving and his praise. And if that's true for Jesus, ought that not be true for us? I know from experience uh, that we can't leave prayer up to chance. Because if you're anything like me, you won't pray. Prayer, and especially, especially worshiping God through our prayers, it requires a rhythm, a framework, an architecture that means that when we don't want to pray or we don't know what to pray, we still pray. Learning to pray takes practice. You can't expect to be good at it if you don't practice. Many years ago when, uh, many years ago when Laura and I were dating, uh, we decided to have a bit of a competition uh, agreed to play Laura's game, which was tennis, and then we agreed to play my game of squash. Um, 
Good game was had in the tennis. It was competitive. Pretty sure Laura won, but I think I kept it reasonably close. Uh, championship tiebreak or something. Um, but when it came back to the squash, um, I looked up the definition of annihilate and um, obliterate, destroy utterly is what I read. And I'm not s saying that was, it wasn't really close. Uh, Laura wasn't pleased that she got beat so badly. In fact, she was quite upset about it, which was an interesting experience for our early dating life. I'm very sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm in, I am in trouble. <laughs> the point being, we can't expect to be good at something if it's the first time we're doing it. Can't, we can't expect to be good at prayer if we're not practicing it regularly. It requires patience. Ronald Rollheiser again says this, there is no bad way to pray and there is no one starting point for prayer. We all come at this from different angles, but the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and you have to show up regularly. But this next line I think is really good news, especially for those of you who are absolutely slammed and can't see how you can find any time of the day. Everything else is negotiable and respects your unique circumstances. So if you've, got, if you've got barely 30 seconds to pray in your day, or you've got 30 minutes, or you've got three hours, the same rule still applies. Just show up. Even if it's just for the scraps, for crumbs of prayer, we are still invited into a dynamic prayer life. I'm a little bit nervous to share this next bit because I want to be clear from the start that this isn't me saying this is how you should do it. But I want to give you an insight into what it's looked like for me for the last little while. I also want to admit that this hasn't been easy to get to this point. I tried this very rhythm a while ago and it didn't work. When the kids were younger, it's hard, I found it harder to make time. There is grace, there is grace, there is grace. Please remember there is always grace. Also, I didn't invent this rhythm. I learned this off a close, dear friend. My best mate has been praying like this for a while. I see his Christ-likeness. I see the fruit of the Spirit in his life, and I want to try and, I want to be like Jesus, so I kind of copied him for a while, and it's sticking. That's what this is. It's trying stuff. See what sticks. Try something else. See what sticks. Give it a chance. But my uh, every, mostly everyday prayer life, um, I want to share you what that's like uh, and remind you again that we all come up from different angles, um, but I want, to see, want you to see that prayer does require a consistent framework, a rhythm, especially in the thick of our days when our attention, our devotion, our worship gets pulled in so many different directions. For the last little while, I've set my alarm off uh, to go off just 15 minutes earlier than usual. I get up quietly, not waking Laura, she's not a morning person. Uh, I try not to look at my phone, uh, I go downstairs, I sit, I breathe for a, for a couple of deep breaths, and I pray a set prayer. I pray the prayer that we read this morning as a liturgy, and it's lifted from Psalm 27. Can you actually flick that liturgy back up, please? So I read the, I, I, I read the bit that's based from Psalm 27. I then do the call and response bit just with myself, which is kind of, maybe, it's, maybe that's weird. I don't know. I don't care. It works for me. So every morning I wake up and I pray this. One thing, of the, one thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek. 
that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then I do the call and response with myself. Who is it that I seek? I seek the Lord, my God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your strength? Amen, Christ, have mercy. The next bit I say is, well, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So praise to you, Lord Jesus, King of endless glory. This prayer baptizes my, the rest of my day into worship of Jesus. It's my declaration of devotion. It's my act of resistance against idols. I'm not saying that it makes me perfect for the day. I usually forget the words about 10 minutes after. God knows that there are lots of things that will pull my worship away from him, but before anything else that can sneak in, I, I express that my longing desire is for the divine. And after praying that one thing prayer, I go on to I read a psalm. And I'll try and pray the psalm. I'll try to use the words and construct them into a prayer towards the Lord. The reason I use the psalms is that Jesus, it was Jesus' own prayer book. It was his song book. There are lots of different ways that this can be done, though. There are lots of great devotionals out there. But as I've whispered aloud these psalms recently, I find slowly they make their way into my bones. They get their way inside me. They're putting a language to the, my deepest desires. I'm confident that that will continue for the rest of my life and the different stages of life that I'll go through. I then go on for the rest of my day. That's it. I lean on liturgy and I pray the Psalms. I need you to hear this. I don't do this because I'm super holy. I do this because I'm not holy enough. I need this. There's days, more days than not, I don't feel like praying when I wake up. Shocker. It's not normal for me to roll out of bed and get caught up in the heavenly presence and stay there for the rest of the day. That just doesn't happen often. Left to my own devices, I would just stay in bed. I'd read on my phone, I'd read through social media, I'd read Twitter, read the news, read emails, eventually get up and go on with my day. I'm an elder in this church, and even I can miss a whole day without praying to Jesus once. It's so easy. I'm pretty sure that's functional atheism. But this act of praying set prayers and praying the psalm takes five minutes of my morning, but it's me commanding myself, as David would say in Psalm 103, to praise the Lord, O my soul, all my, most inmost, all my inmost being, would you just wake up and praise his holy name? I love that that psalm um, gives legitimacy to speaking to yourself. David's commanding his soul because he knows what he's like. I wake up tired and sluggish, but rather than wait until I feel ready to worship, I use fixed prayers to waken my soul. This ritual carries me beyond my tiredness and my feelings and my distraction. I try to not look at my phone, by the way, before this. I feel at that a lot. I try to not look at my phone before we do this, because invariably there's something to distract us. This keeps me praying when I'm too tired to muster up my own energy. Some days I pray that, just leave it, and I'm done. Sometimes I, I spend a bit more time reading. 
There's days whenever I wake up and in seasons of life, if I'm going through the ringer, I find even that praying is just a struggle. Putting words to prayers is just hard. Maybe some of you are finding that today. Having a fixed prayer, having an ancient prayer, having psalms that the church has been rehearsing and singing and praying for generations and generations as calls to worship that can help. Most mornings, praying is an act of the will. It's a discipline. But as I quietly and tiredly pray aloud words of worship, I am daily and defiantly expressing my deeper, deepest desire. I want Jesus, I want to worship Jesus with my whole life. I want him to have everything. And this is, and this is where it starts. And the more I do this, the more this will become a habit. And that's what I'm aiming for, is I want this to be a habit in my life. The depth of, of, of our devotion to Jesus is revealed in what we do on the days that we're just not feeling it. So do you have an architecture? Do you have a framework, a foundation in place that will carry you in the direction of your deepest desires on the days you're not feeling it? And I mean no condemnation if you don't. We have grace here. We don't, we don't do these things to be saved. We are saved by grace alone, by Jesus alone. But this is an invitation so I want to encourage you to start building, start small, and I mean it, start small with 30 seconds, a minute, maybe then two minutes. Set an alarm, set alarms through your day to remind yourself to disrupt your day. Look at your calendar for tomorrow. Audit your day. Is there somewhere you can carve out just something? That's the set ways. Second way is in the spontaneous ways, the, the free ways. I think we're to learn to pray without ceasing. We need to, if we're to learn to pray without ceasing, we need to learn how to pray spontaneously in the moment on the go. Because as we get bombarded by these rival counterfeit gods throughout our day, at home, at work, whatever, these spontaneous free prayers, they, they redirect us back towards Jesus and all it takes is a breath. I have a few one-breath prayers that I have in my arsenal, in my, in like a menu of options, if you like. And there's probably a load more you can add. One really helpful one, thank you, Jesus, amen. Takes a breath. When I'm in the company of good friends, when I'm eating good foods, listen to good music, if I find a car parking spot for a hot shower, for health in my body after a walk, joy in my kids. Thank you, Jesus, amen. After 10 years of living in East Belfast without having somewhere to drink good beer, somewhere opens, thank you, Jesus, amen. I heard an amen there from someone. <laughs> Literally, the work of Jesus in anyone, thank you, Jesus, amen. Small, simple prayer grounds me in the truth that Jesus is the source of all goodness. And I want to respond to praise him by thanking him. A couple other one-breath prayers. Another way that Jesus himself teaches us how to pray. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Feeling the weight of your sin. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy, Lord. Or if you want a one-word prayer, Maranatha, sound all fancy. It's Aramaic for come, Lord Jesus. For the moments when we see the effects of sin on the world, 
politics is up the left again. There's tragedy in some other part of the world. There's famine. There's war. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. So those are like, I guess it's like a hybrid, somewhere between set and spontaneous. They are spontaneous, but they are these little kind of options we have. Then thirdly, I suppose, towards the more spontaneous. Once we build into our life this idea of, of worshiping, of praying through the Psalms, of using ancient words and prayers found in scriptures, fed by these things, we find that those influence our own voice. And it's important that we do find our own voice in prayer. We want the distance between, have you ever noticed that sometimes people have a prayer voice? Like a special voice that they only like switch on whenever it comes time to praying. Like I don't, you don't speak like that any other time except when you're praying. And I think it's important to have a reverence when we come before God, but there's also something about having our actual voice, the distance between our actual voice and our prayer voice, like shrinking that distance. Because prayer is a conversation. And it's a conversation, as we looked at at the start of the Lord's Prayer, it's a conversation that's to be laced in love. By using our real voice in real time, using our words in prayer, it can be uncomfortable. And so often we respond by like sticking on Hillsong or something, where we just refuse to use our own words and we rely on the words of others. And like I said, there is a time and a place for that. Those things are good, and it's good to like listen to music and stuff. I'm not saying that's bad, but I think there's a layer of devotion that goes even deeper that we're invited to, where we learn to express our devotion in our words. If I wanted to tell Laura I love her, I'm not going to switch on Marvin Gaye. Maybe, maybe I should. Maybe that would work. Actually, I haven't tried it. Um, I'm just, I'm not going to use someone else's word. That's kind of weird. Maybe it's okay. I don't know. Anyway, the, the, the point is that it's, it's, it's hard. It's clunky. It's, it's difficult to use our own words in prayer with Jesus, but I think that's fine. I think that's part of the process. Our lines aren't going to be these perfectly scripted, you know, verses like, they're just going to be from the heart, and that's okay. We'll stumble over them. We'll not get them quite right. But I think that's more of a real expression of love because it's honest. We can't just defer the expression of our love to just using someone else's words. We need to find our own voice. Tozer puts it like this. God desires and is pleased to communicate with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the souls of redeemed men and women is the throbbing heart of the New Testament. A continuous, unembarrassed interchange of love. That's class. There's no space where we can't encounter the presence of Jesus. Our worship can't be confined to the music set on a Sunday morning. It can't be confined to this building. Our worship can't be confined to a Sunday. Our worship can't be confined to someone else's words. Every aspect of daily life is a valid entry point into expressing your love for Jesus through your prayers. Through prayer, you can worship at any moment. We often talk about Brother Lawrence. He's a monk from the 1600s. And as he went about his days in an abbey uh, just outside Paris, he was 
preparing food, cleaning dishes, talking to others, sharing meals in the normal rhythm of his everyday, he would just find himself in the moment becoming so aware of Jesus and expressing his love through prayer. I think one of his most famous quotes is this. He does not ask much of us. Merely a thought of him from time to time. We can all do that. I think we can all do that. A little act of adoration sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, other times to thank him for grace's past and present in the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be most pleasing to him. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. I think that's good news for those of us who are living busy, full lives. One does not need to cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. Friends, the least little remembrance of Jesus in the thick of your day will be the most pleasing worship to his ears. I want to invite Marie and Chris to come back up. We're going to pray. Um, in fact, yeah, let's pray now. But before we pray, I want to ask you to reflect. As we prepare our hearts for communion, let's just examine what's going on. What are those natural things that we are hoisting into the place of Jesus? What are we hallowing more than him? I want to gently remind you that there is grace for you. You're not condemned. God's loving forgiveness brings us back to himself. Let's repent. Let's leave those idols behind and uh, remind ourselves that Jesus is the one to be hallowed. And maybe if you're someone who is doubting, who just wants to get that one thing answered, get that one question resolved, if you could just hold on until such and such. I want to invite you to reject that notion and invite you to step towards the Lord as he's a step towards you. The logical thing is to not worship through your doubt, but our worship forms us into worshipers. So as you step towards the Lord, he has got his arms open and embrace. It's like the two friends who are walking from the mess of Resurrection Sunday, not realizing that the Lord was risen and walking alongside them. They're in a day of disillusionment. Everything has fallen apart. But when they looked back and remembered that it was Jesus, what did they say? Weren't our hearts just burning inside of us? Come to him. Father, we confess that we are quick to replace you as the hallowed one of our lives. We're so prone to worshiping counterfeit gods forgive us. We thank you for your grace in this. Thank you for the invitation you have given us into a life of of, of deep conversation through prayer. We thank you that that this is an invitation and it's not a requirement to be saved. Lord, you have saved us by your grace alone. Teach us, Lord, to worship through our prayers, and as we do so, form us into worshipers. Teach us, Lord, to worship in spirit and truth. Those who glorify God, 
Teach us to glorify God. Teach us to enter into your joy. May, our, may the gap between our Sundays be filled with prayerful praise, filled with your devotion. Lord Jesus, hallowed be your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand um, as we come to sing, as we come to the table. Every week we come to this table and we're reminded that this bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you, that the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ that was shed for you. We remember Christ's death and resurrection again. We commit to placing him in the hallowed place again. Uh, if you're new, uh, there'll be people serving it either side. Come up, take a, uh, a cup that's got bread and wine in it. Um, the lighter one is non-alcoholic wine. Uh, bring it back. Bring a couple back if you're with someone um, and take that at, home, at, at, your, um, at your chairs. Uh, this meal is for those who are following Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, we ask you to refrain from this. Uh, if you're not following Jesus, I want to invite you to come and speak to me. Um, may today be a day that you put Jesus in the hallowed place instead of whatever else there is. He is worth all of your praise and glory. Uh, let's respond in singing and uh, taking the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm.